book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking tonight at chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, Lord willing. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth and you have promised us that you will sanctify us through it. Uh, Help us tonight, Lord, to be sanctified, to grow in the knowledge of of your word, of who you are. And Lord, may we love you more as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Boy, I really enjoyed chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 that we looked at on Wednesday night. And if you were here and you remember, uh, the writer was comparing comparing, uh, Moses and Jesus, but now he moves to the followers of Moses and Jesus. And what he's going to do is he's going to use the illustration of Moses' followers as a warning to those Hebrews who are claiming to follow Jesus. Because there were among some of these Hebrews uh, those who identified as Christians but were falling away from the faith, turning their back on Christianity. And so the writer here uses a significant amount of his time warning those who are abandoning the faith. You're going to see that all throughout this book. And we do see that certainly in our churches today. There are people who appear to follow Christ uh, for some time. But then for whatever reason, that they, they fall away. And so we're going to see tonight what we can learn from these passages uh, about unbelief. And I want you to be, look with me first in, in, in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts. And they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Now I want you to notice in verse 7 that the Bible here actually claims divine authorship. It says, as the Holy Spirit says. I say that because there are people who have claimed that the Bible never claims to be the Word of God. But here's an example of exactly where it it does that. And the writer's quoting Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. But notice he doesn't say the psalmist says. He says the Holy Spirit says. And the reference is to the book of Exodus, chapter 17. If you remember that story, the Hebrews were traveling to the promised land. They were going through the wilderness. Uh, They were thirsty, and there was no water. And so they all began to argue. They got upset. They began to argue with Moses. They questioned if God was even among them, if God was even with them anymore. And they charged Moses. They said something absolutely ridiculous. They said to Moses, you have brought us out here to the desert to just kill us, but not only us, you have brought us out here to the desert to kill us. Kill us and our children too. And so they made this crazy charge uh, against Moses. Now God had already miraculously provided both food and water for them very recently on at least two different occasions. In the book of Exodus chapter 15 and again in the book of Exodus chapter 16, He had provided them food and drink. So they had no reason, no logical reason at all to believe that the Lord was going to let them die. Now now I want you to to look here uh, where it says uh, um, uh, there that they put me to the test. Your fathers, verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test. Now what does that mean? They said this. They said, God, if you're real, 
give us water. That was the test. We talked about this the other day when we said that that God is not obligated to give us any signs at all. That God has already uh, given enough witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century that He is not obligated to come in every single generation and do miraculous things and make all of these amazing miracles so that people will believe in Him. He's not obligated to do that. And that's why we don't see people with the apostolic gifts today because God's not going to do that again. We have the resurrection of Jesus. We have the Word of God. But here, these were people who had seen far more than you and I had ever seen. They had seen the plagues that were put upon Egypt. They had seen uh, the Red Sea split in two. They, they had seen... Um, uh, God destroy Pharaoh's army. They, they had seen God give them water out of a rock. They had seen God provide quail from the heavens. These people, y'all, had seen all kind of stuff. And so the thing is, they had no reason at all not to believe God, but they didn't. They didn't believe God. You know, Jesus said something about that. Um, he was talking, uh, remember the story of, of the rich man and Lazarus. Remember the, the rich man uh, had went to hell and he wanted somebody to go and tell his brothers uh, not to come to this place. And Jesus said something that was so amazing. He said, look, if, if they don't believe the prophets, they wouldn't even believe if somebody came from the dead and told them that. They, they, they wouldn't believe. And so Jesus is absolutely right because here's a group of people who have witnessed the miraculous, who have seen amazing things, yet they continue to test God. God, do this. God, do. God is not our genie, folks. God is not here to just whatever we want Him to do, we tell Him to do, and then He does it. And then look at verse 10. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. So them testing God like this, it it provoked God. He said that he was provoked with that entire generation. And God swore that these people would not go to the promised land. Now, this was not an isolated case. The the people also had no faith that God would protect them for their enemies. Remember whenever they went to the edge of the promised land and Joshua and Caleb and some spies went out there to check out the promised land? And when they came back, uh, the, the ten spies said, man, those folks are big. We don't need to go in there. Joshua and Caleb said, hey, we can make it. All we have to do is trust in the Lord. But instead of listening to Joshua and Caleb, remember what they did? They listened to that fearful report. And, and so there was a pattern of unbelief in these people's lives. When, when you look at verse 9, it says, Wherefore your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. That's amazing. Forty years. For forty years, y'all, they put God to the test. They said, God, do this. God, do this. God, do this. God, do this. If you're real, do this. If you love us, do this. For forty years, that they did that. And so this wasn't some isolated event. And God, remember, determined that only the people that were under 20 years old at that point would even enter the promised land other than Joshua and Caleb. Now let's look at how this generation is described. Look at verse 8. Do not harden your hearts. So they had hardened hearts. Look at verse 8 again. As in the rebellion. They were rebellious people. Rebellious against God. Look at verse 10. Therefore I was provoked with this generation. They always go astray in their hearts. Now see, most of that generation didn't even know who God was. When you look at verse 10, 
He said, they have not known my ways. They didn't even know who God was. And here they had Moses, this great preacher. They had seen all of these miraculous events. By the way, much of the, much of the first century church had seen amazing miracles. Much of the first century church had seen the apostles come and do amazing miracles that, that blew the minds of people. And so in a, in a very real way, they were a lot, of, they were a lot alike, the, the, the generation that followed Moses. Now, now let's move on and we'll see here that, that unbelief is revealed by disobedience to the Lord. That's, that's what we see here. Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So an unbelieving heart is what leads to a departure from the things of God. Remember verse 8, a hardened heart. Remember verse 10, you've gone astray in your heart. Always remember that the first thing to leave God will be your heart. You can sit in church for a long time after your heart's already left. You, you can engage in ministry for a long time after your heart's already left. The first thing to always go is in your heart. By the way, that's why it's so important that we look at our hearts on a regular basis. That we test our motives. That we look at who we are on the inside. Not just am I going through the motions? Am I continuing to read my Bible? Am I continuing to go to church? Am I continuing to do all these disciplines? Those are wonderful and those are necessary for spiritual growth. But don't ever fool yourself into thinking that those things necessarily mean you'll be close to God. You go astray in your heart. Their hearts went astray. Their hearts were rebellious. Their hearts were hardened. In the end, they did not know God in their heart. And now look, look at verse 19 where it says there, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So the Israelites were not allowed to enter the promised land because of unbelief. See, unbelief was the root cause of their rebellion. Departing from God was just the fruit. They departed from God because they didn't believe. That was it. That's why they had to keep asking God, God do this for us, God do this miracle for us. Because they didn't believe God. And in verse 12, the unbelieving heart is described as evil. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, there are people who would look at this and they would disagree with this. They, they would say, well, you, you, can, you can believe and, and still do evil, evil things. And I've heard a lot of people justify a life of sin by saying, oh, but I believe in Christ. Yeah, I know I do all of these things, but I, I, I believe in Christ. Now, can Christians do evil things? You bet. Christians can absolutely do evil things. And we don't think that every time a Christian sins that they're now apostate and they've fallen away from the faith. But you see, it was a pattern here with the Israelites. This was, in this context, something that continued for 40 years. This was not some isolated event. This is who they were to their core, in their heart. And so what is the writer doing here? What's his point? What's he trying to, to get us as Christians to see? He's compelling us to look at our own hearts to determine if it's possible that we're like that wilderness generation. Am I falling away from the living God? And to fall away means to fall away from His teachings, to no longer believe in Him. And again, that goes back to, to, to the generation that, that we have today. Uh, you, you remember 
one of the most evil things I think that happened uh, when you look at the crucifixion. You remember Jesus was up there on the cross and there was people uh, down there at the foot and they were mocking him, they were making fun of him, saying some of the most God evil things that you could ever imagine. And, and they said to him, they said, if you're the Son of God, why don't you come down? Remember that? If you're the Son of God, why don't you come down from the cross? You imagine pulling those nails out of your hand and pulling them out of your feet, coming down, jumping off that cross to the ground. They wanted to see something like that. And you would say, well, that's an evil thing to tempt God, to, to prove. I mean, look at the cross. He loves you. That's why he's there. He's already praying, Father, forgive him, for they know not what they do. He's already, already inviting a thief into paradise. But understand this, that any time that we begin to say, God, if you're real, do this. God, if you're real, do that. We're doing essentially the same thing that those people were doing at the foot of the cross. God does not have to do these magical tricks for us, for us to believe in him, for us to trust him. What did Jesus say? He said, an, he said an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. He said, but I sing unto you that the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth. And on the third day he shall arise. So what is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, you want a sign? Here's your sign. It's me rising from the dead. And, and if we continue to say, God, if you're real, do this. God, if you're real, do that. God says it reveals your heart, a heart of unbelief, an evil heart, an adulterous heart. You know, think about if you were in a marriage like that. If you were in a marriage like that where somebody, where you had to constantly keep proving your love. You had to just, con well, if you love me, you'll do this. Well, if you love me, you'll do this. Think about maybe your kids do that to you. Well, if you love me, you'll do this. After a while, you get tired of it and say, you know, haven't I done enough? Right? And it's the same way with God. What more does God have to do for us, church? For us to believe in Him. To trust in Him. I'm looking out at a group of people. Every one of you had shoes to put on today. I will guarantee you, every one of you had a nice meal today. Every one of you are going to go home and you're going to sleep in a bed tonight. Probably with air conditioning or heat, whatever your choice. Maybe a little oscillating fan as well. All types of luxuries, right? What else does God have to do with you? Not to mention that He saved you. Not to mention that Christ went to the cross for you. What else does He have to do? And so He's saying here, don't be like that wilderness generation. God did all types of miraculous things for them. But all they ever did was say, God, prove yourself. God, prove yourself. God, prove yourself. And He's saying to these Hebrew Christians, He's saying, you guys remind me of them. You're ready to turn away from the Christian faith. Because God's not acting in a manner that you think is sufficient. Now I want you to notice in verse 13 that, that we should encourage one another to continue in the faith. Look what he says in verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Man, you could just preach a sermon right on that little phrase there. The deceitfulness of sin. I don't want to do that, so let's back up. He says, exhort one another. Encourage one another. What are, they, what are we to encourage one another to do? Well, forsake sin. Live for God. Why? Because sin is so deceptive. And if we allow ourselves to be deceived by sin... He's saying we, we risk our heart being hardened. In other words, we begin to justify and therefore continue 
in our sin. Any sin you justify, you will continue doing. Right? Any sin you justify, you will continue doing. Remember this morning we said, the, the, when we, we looked at the prodigal man, he, he, he came back and he said, I've just sinned against God and man. And that just is the proper way, y'all. Not to justify it. Not to make excuses. And I'm afraid that, that we've lost this whole idea of encouraging one another in the church not to sin. I think we've lost that in the Western church. Because here in, in the West, we are a very proud people. And we are offended when anyone talks to us about sin. We're absolutely fine to speak about sin from a very wide angle. As long as I stand up here and talk about sin, everybody's fine. But whenever we go to someone and we start talking about sin in their particular life as an individual, whoa, whoa, wait, you've stepped a little too far now. You've come a little bit too close to me now. And it's because we're a proud people. And we're offended when anyone would ever speak to us about our sin. Let me ask you a question tonight, because look at the context here. What is he saying? He's saying, encourage one another not to be in sin. Encourage one another not to do that. So let me ask you a question. Who do you encourage personally to forsake sin? You personally, as a Christian, because this is what you're supposed to do. This is your job as a Christian. Who in your life do you talk to about their sin? You say, Brother Kyle, I don't... Have you ever went to a person and said, you know what, I, I think this is sinful. And did you know that even in some families, you see that that doesn't happen? That even in some families, there's so many walls around one another that it's just people would freak out. It might be a divorce if a husband said to a wife, you know what, I think you're acting kind of sinful. Or if a wife said to a husband, hey, I think you're acting kind of sinful. And if we don't do that in our own families, we certainly probably won't do that in the church either. But we're afraid to speak to one another like that. Because we live in a day and age in which people are just so prideful. There's not a person in here without sin. Amen? Not a person in here without it. And I can't tell you how many times my own children have come to me and said, you know, I think that's sinful, Dad. And I say, Amen, you're right. And how many times I've went to them and sat them down and said, let's talk about this sin now that you're involved in. This is a really sinful attitude you have. And when you start your family out that is young, I'm going to tell you, it really makes a difference in your family. It does. When you talk about sin, because, listen, I'm going to tell you, this whole Christianity thing, it's about sin. It's about sin and forgiveness, isn't it? That sinners are forgiven. And where you learn about that really is in the home. And then you begin to use those principles to teach about God. But we've sinned against God in the same way that we've sinned against one another. So let me ask you a question. Who do you encourage to forsake sin? If there's no one, then you're not obeying Scripture. Who do you encourage to continue living for the Lord? Do you ever speak to someone just for the sole purpose of encouraging them to live for the Lord? Just encouraging them to do it. Now, I have some people I do this to, and it's just a, a thing that I do to them. And I greet them and I say, are you still living for the Lord? And it's just my thing, and it's kind of a thing that we mess with each other about, you know. But, but there's seriousness to it as well. 
Some people that I only see like maybe once a year or twice a year or maybe once every five years of my life now. One guy in particular, when I talked to him on the phone, the first question, are you still living for the Lord? And it's a thing with us. But that should happen in the local church too. That every person that you go to church with, every person in here, in some way you should be encouraging the people that you go to church with, the people in your home, to keep living their life for the Lord. So who do, you, who do you encourage to forsake sin? Who do you encourage to continue living for the Lord? Who do you warn about the deceitfulness of sin? Who do you warn about the deceitfulness of sin? Yeah, have you ever sat your kids down and said, hey, let me talk to you about kissing. I had this talk with my kids so long ago. Now, if you ever start dating and you get somebody, one of the first things they're going to do is they're going to start kissing. I'll tell them, but I'll guarantee you this. You'll never fall into sexual sin if you don't kiss people you're not married to. Amen? Because son, because daughter, sin is deceitful. And when you start doing it and you start getting involved with it, before you know it, man, you have justified all types of sinful. I can't talk to my kids like that, Brother Kyle. Why? Why can't you talk to your children like that? And if you can't talk to your children like that, who will? Who will? There's a deceitfulness in sin. What about like if somebody says to you, you know, I don't go to church anymore. What do you say? Or do you just say, okay? Or do you say, you know what? You should. Amen? You should. If you're a Christian, you should. Now, none of this is meant to be mean at all. This is meant to encourage one another to keep living for God. And if we never do that, there's going to be so many casualties. And there are already, by the way. So many casuals in the Christ, casualties in the Christian faith that the church will be empty. What about this? You know, what about when somebody tells you that they're living in an immoral relationship? What do you do? What do, you, do you say, oh, that's great. Or do you say, hey, I don't, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound like a very godly relationship to me. I could go on, but, but the point is, it's the obligation of the church to keep one another accountable. Now look, when should we do this? The text tells us when we should do this. Every day. It says every day and we should do it today. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now, now he continues and, and he ends this thing with the same thing that he's been talking about over and over. And that's the perseverance of the faith. And we see here that the perseverance in the faith is the proof of salvation. Look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. You see that word if? We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. I'm not going to keep defining perseverance for you because we've defined that a few times already. But just very simply put, perseverance in the faith means that those who truly belong to God will continue in faith in Christ and good works until the end. That's what it means. And it's endurance to the end that proves that our faith in Christ is real. And if our faith is not real, then we will not endure to the end. That's what he says here. And again, this is something that we as Baptists really need to grasp. Because the proof of our salvation 
is not in our church membership. It's not in our baptism. It's not in uh, saying the sinner's prayer. It is in persevering in faith and good works until the end. It's revealed by our behavior, not by some moment in time we can point back to and say this happened on this particular day. Now look at verse 15. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So he reminds them of the wilderness generation again. And there's an insight in this verse as to what saving faith looks like. He says here, it's our response to the voice of God. It's our response to the voice of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. So your response to the Word of God, Jesus said it this way, your response to the Word of God reveals if the Word of God has fallen on rocky or fertile soil. Rocky being hardened, fertile being soft and productive. Now what is the voice of God? The Word of God. That's the voice of God. It's, it's, it's the Bible. And it doesn't mean, by the way, that you just say amen to the Word of God. It doesn't mean you say, oh yeah, I believe what the Bible says. It means you believe the Word of God and you prove that you believe the Word of God by living your life by it. That's, that's what it means. Perseverance in the faith and perseverance in the Word of God are synonymous. They are the same thing. Now next we're going to see what the writer, that the writer wants to remind the Hebrews who it was that wasn't able to enter the promised land. Um, And he wants this to sink deep down into their hearts. And so I want you to notice in verse 16, he asks them, he's going to ask them three questions. And and these questions are, 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 are a particular way to teach. Because he knows if he asks these questions, it's going to strike them in their heart. And they're going to realize that that he's talking about them persevering the faith. So watch how he does this. Look at verse 16. He says, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? So who heard from God and rebelled? There's the first question. And they knew the answer. It was the Hebrews who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And so there was this what appeared to be deliverance for them. What appeared to be a salvation for them. And he says, who was it? And so they would, it's a rhetorical question. So they would answer that question. Well, who was it? Well, it was the Hebrews. The ones who left Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And then look at verse 17. Another question. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? So with who was God provoked? Well, it was the Jewish people who left Egypt and then sinned and died in the wilderness. And then verse 18, And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? To whom did God say, you're not going to enter into my rest? It was the disobedient Jews. He's saying all that because he's he's likening what happened to them to what's happening presently to the Hebrew Christians. He's saying, you guys have your own... Moses, which is Jesus, who you said have led you out of sin, who are leading you into the promised land, but now look at you, you are, you, you are forsaking the faith. Your hearts are hardened. You're not believing the Lord. You're not living for the Lord. And, he, and, he, and, he, and they, they would think, well, I don't want to be like those Jews because remember, these are Hebrews. These are Jewish people that he's preaching to here. And they would think, well, I certainly don't want to be like them. 
Now look at verse 19, we see the conclusion. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. He's saying that just as unbelief kept the Jews out of the promised land, unbelief will even keep those who identify as Christians out of heaven. Just as unbelief kept the Jews out of the promised land, unbelief will keep those who identify as Christians out of heaven. And I think most Christians would agree with that. The problem we have is how we define belief. But we have to define uh, belief or unbelief. How Scripture defines it. Unbelief here in this context is rebellion to God's Word. Provoking God. Ongoing disobedience. All of these are signs that the writer points to of, of unbelief. You know, we live in a culture today where you can do a lot of things because you identify in a certain way. Right? You can say, well, I'll tell you, I just, um, um, I'm a female, but um, uh, I want to uh, play male sports so I can identify as a male. Or you may be a male and you want to go into a woman's restroom so you can identify as a female. And we live in a day and age where our culture overlooks clear, objective truth and allows people to create their own reality, don't we? We live in that day. You want to identify something, you just identify as whatever it is you want to identify as. And there are many in our culture who identify as Christian. But God isn't going to let us into heaven just because we say, well, this is how I identify. The government may, may let you in a restroom. The government may let you play a sport that you're not biologically qualified to play. But when it comes to God, God's not going to let you into heaven just because you say, I identify as a Christian. He wouldn't let the Jews enter the promised land simply because they identified as Jews. He wouldn't do that. He would not allow that. And He won't let people enter heaven simply because they identify as a Christian. We're saved by faith, church, but faith works and saving faith transforms us. And the major question we should ask ourselves concerning our Christian faith is not, again, have I been baptized or have I joined the church? The question is this, what is my response to the Word of God? What is my response to the Word of God? You know, let me give you a really simple illustration on this. Because we'll all say, oh, I believe in the Word of God. And, and that's, you know, that's, that's a vague thing to say. Anybody can say that. But what about when it comes to, hey, forgive? Do you believe the Bible says forgive your enemies? Yeah, I believe it. Do you? No. Right? That doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense at all. And I, could, I don't want to do it, but I, I could list a whole bunch of Christian commands that we have. So the heart of the matter really is to look at the commands and then to look at my heart and to see what is my heart's response to the Word of God. Because that reveals if I have a heart and heart or not. If I have a heart of unbelief. You can say you believe all you want. But that's not what determines if you truly believe. If you truly believe, it's about your response to the Word of God. 
Do I conform myself to the teachings of Scripture? Do I listen to the voice of God through the Word of God and obey it? You see, see the writer here, he, he's, concerned, he's concerned about a lot of his Hebrew uh, brothers and sisters. They, they're, they're claiming to be Christians, but, but what he's seeing in their life is, is a terrible response to the commands of Scripture. And he's saying this, he's saying, and I think it's such an interesting thing because he's not using any New Testament Scriptures to do this. He's using the Old Testament because he knows that's going to speak to the heart of these Jewish people. He's going all the way back to the law and he's using this illustration and he's saying, guys, don't be like our Jewish ancestors who were Jewish only in name, not in heart. He's saying, don't just be Christian in name. Be Christian in your heart. Live what you believe and prove to yourself and prove to the world that you do indeed belong to Christ by obeying the commands of Scripture. A hardened heart, y'all, is a heart that looks at the commands of God and says, eh, maybe I'll obey and maybe I won't. That's what a hardened heart does. And it is a heart of unbelief. Even if you believe the facts or, or tell yourself that you believe the facts. Scripture defines saving faith not simply as an ascension to the facts about Christ. It defines saving faith as trust and reliance upon God through Jesus Christ that results in transformed lives and therefore transform behavior. Amen? Amen. A warning against unbelief. Well, what a blessing it's been to be in the house of the Lord today. And I appreciate those of you who began your day here and ended it as well. I know tomorrow is uh, President's Day. Some are out of school and some may be even um, off work as well. I, I want to remind you of something I said at the beginning of the, of the service.